If you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, today we continue our study of this greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And today we're going to look at Jesus' warning about uh, false teachers uh, or false prophets. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. Hear the words of God. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now, God, to learn from you, from your holy word. And God, I pray, Lord, you would lead and guide and that your Holy Spirit, Father, would take these words and press them upon our hearts. Use your word, Father, to change us to make us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is the greatest sermon that's ever been uh, preached. It's preached by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the very God incarnate, uh, and it's the longest recorded sermon of his that we have recorded. Uh, I want to just remind you very briefly of the setting of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, In chapter 4 and verse 25, before he starts the sermon, it says that large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. These large crowds in the original language doesn't mean a large group like we might have here from time to time. The word in the original language literally means humongous. There would be uh, standing room only, so to speak. Uh, This was no small group study that Jesus was doing. There were multitudes, probably in well into the thousands. The crowd was so large that Jesus, it says, had to go up on a mountain. And it says there he sat down and began to teach. Now in that context, it was the opposite. So y'all are sitting down in your nice comfortable pews and I'm up here standing proclaiming the word of God. But at that point, in that time, Uh, The rabbis or the teachers, ones that had the authority, would take a seat. And when they sat down, that was the position of authority that they would speak from, and everyone else would stand up. Okay, so I won't do that to y'all, but just so you know, that was the position that Jesus was in when he sat down and began uh, to teach. But it's important to remind ourselves, as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, just how powerful the very words of Jesus were in that context. At the end of his sermon, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And that's chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. And this idea of the the power that came from the words of Christ was prevalent all throughout his ministry. He did not teach like all the others taught. He did not teach like the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, not only was his teaching different from a, uh, 
purely physical standpoint, meaning the words he spoke were different because he, he spoke truth, and the Pharisees often, for the most part, uh, twisted the truth. So not only was his teaching different from what he taught, but he also spoke from his own authority, not as the scribes. So from a spiritual standpoint, he was, he was teaching in a very different aspect than the teachers of his day. I mean, this is very God of gods in the flesh speaking. So although he was 100% man, he was also 100% God. And when he spoke, people knew and heard and saw and felt a difference. His words would pierce people into their soul like none other. I mean, have you ever been in a sermon uh, where you're looking at the preacher and they're preaching God's word? And it's, it's, it's almost as if he's looking into your soul and the words of God, not the man, but the words of God are the one piercing you in your heart. Have you ever been in that position? I know I have many occasions. Well, how much more so when it's the actual God incarnate speaking truth, it pierced people to the heart like they've never been pierced before. As a matter of fact, in John, the book of John, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sent officers to seize Jesus. They were ready to capture him, and they sent them to seize him. They came back empty-handed. When they were asked, why did you not bring him in? Chapter 7, verse 46, they answered and said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. These were Roman soldiers and guards. These were not Jews. But never has a man spoken like this man. And if you recall, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to capture Jesus, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did Jesus say? I am he. And it said they fell back it, literally, his words, just by saying, I am he, the words carried weight and power like they've never heard before. So when we come to the text, really with any text, not just the red letters, but when we come to any text in the Bible, it's all inspired by God's word. But we need to know in the context of this sermon, when Jesus is speaking, sometimes we think of like the nice little pictures of Jesus sitting and there's like, you know, 40, 50 people here, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. No, no friends, there's thousands of people. He's up on a mountain sitting down, and his, his words are so powerful, both audibly but also spiritually, that the whole, the whole multitude, thousands, are captivated, and his words are piercing. So we need to understand it helps us to grow in our knowledge of Christ when we understand this um, historical context here. And within the sermon... We're at the climax of this wonderful sermon. Jesus has taught his disciples in the crowds, and, and now in, verse, in chapter 7, he's impressing upon them to make a choice, to enter through the one and only way to eternal life, through the narrow or small gate, which leads to the narrow way, which leads to eternal life. Jesus warns of the broad way, which many are on, which lead to destruction. And Jesus gives four warnings in chapter 7, each with two contrasts. And the overall theme here is judgment. 
And this permeates throughout the entire chapter. Each warning, each warning beginning at verse 13, concludes with judgment. In verse 13, broad is the way that leads to destruction. This is judgment. In our text today, we'll see in verse 19, Jesus speaks about judgment by saying, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. This is echoed by John the Baptist in chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 10. Uh, The next warning in verse 23, he speaks of a judgment again. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, judgment is the theme. And then finally, in the fourth warning, contrasting the two different types of builders, Jesus again speaks of judgment in verse 27, where he says, The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Again, he's speaking not of a Christian who might fall or stumble into sin as it's been interpreted, and we'll get to this in the upcoming weeks, but he's speaking of the judgment that's going to come from God and those who have not built their life upon the teachings of Jesus. They will be judged and they will fall in the final judgment. Those who reject the narrow way to eternal life will be judged. So we come to our text today with that historical and biblical context. We're we're coming to our text today looking at these verses in verse 15 to 20. Jesus deals with false prophets, false teachers. I'll use those interchangeably, okay? Uh, False prophets are a false teacher. I'm going to use those interchangeably because a prophet, and many people think a prophet is just someone who uh, tells the future. Okay, now prophets did do that in the Old Testament, but prophets are one who speaks for God, speaks to the people on behalf of God. That's what a prophet is, okay? And God deals here with false prophets, those who would claim to speak for God who are not truly speaking for God. And there's four headers I want to address in today's text, and Uh, We'll probably just get to two of them and then finish up uh, the last two in our next appointed time. But we're going to address four things here I see in the text. And that's first God's warning of false teachers. God's warning. And then next we're going to look at God's instruction. God gives us instruction on how to discern and identify false prophets, false teachers. Then we're going to look at man's response. What's the proper response for us to false prophets, false teachers? And then finally, we're going to look at God's response. How does God respond to false teachers or false prophets? So first, God's warning of false teachers. Let's look at our text, verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous Wolves. The very first word says, beware. This is a verb, and it's in the imperative, which means it's a command. So we are all to take heed to Jesus' command here. You know, we talked about um, Brother Brian on, on the petition on doing God's will. What's God's will for our life? Well, first, it's to obey Him. 
And he's given us a command. We would do well to understand what it means to beware of false teachers. And the word beware means to be on guard or to give careful attention to. Beware of false prophets, he says. Uh, This is not optional. Uh, The word that he uses here, beware, is very strong in the original language. It's not, hey, you know, kind of give a second thought, make sure you're not coming across false teachers. Uh, You know, if we think about, like, at our house, we have uh, a beware of dog sign, right? Um, And that's telling people, hey, listen, we're warning you. Uh, Beware. There's a dog here uh, that may attack you if you come on our property, okay? And it's in red letters, and that's what Jesus is saying here. In the red letters, beware, wake up, give careful attention to false prophets. And in the context of the previous verse that we just learned about entering through the narrow gate and the narrow way and not going through the broad gate and the broad way which leads to uh, destruction, false prophets stand near the narrow gate and convince people to enter through the broad gate and the broad way. False prophets are dangerous. Because they lead people straight to hell. And we need to beware of them. They often even ridicule those who want to go through the narrow way and call them narrow-minded or bigots. And they stand at the very place where people are to enter eternal life. And they convince people to go in the broad way through the broad gate. Jesus says that they're dressed in sheep's clothing, yet they are ravenous wolves. Now, this would have hit home with his audience because many of them understood uh, shepherding and what it means to shepherd sheep. And the most, the most dangerous predator for these sheep were, were wolves. They were wolves. And if one sheep was left behind, you can forget about that sheep. That wolf is going to get to that sheep. It was an absolute predator. And Jesus is warning them that these are ravenous wolves. Now, that word ravenous actually means, in the original language, extortioner. It actually has an idea of money tied to it. Like they fleece the flock. Like their, their motivation, generally, false prophets and false teachers, uh, is to extortion, to be extortionists. They are ravenous wolves. They want to fleece the flock. Of course, I'm getting ahead of myself here. But it's very important that we understand the danger of false prophets and false teaching. Once a wolf got a hold of a sheep, there is no turning back for that wolf. That sheep is done, is gone. And we need to have that mentality in the Christian church, both the universal church, but also in the local church. We need to have that mentality That it is like a wolf attacking a sheep, and that's how much we need to beware of false teachers and false prophets. False prophets were nothing new in Jesus' day. They had been around well before Jesus, and they were actually prevalent during Jesus' day. And they would come after Jesus would die, be raised again, and ascended to heaven. 
In fact, one of the major themes throughout the entire New Testament is warnings about false teaching, false teachers, and false prophets. It's all throughout the New Testament. Matter of fact, it's addressed in almost every single book in the New Testament, this warning of false teachers and false prophets. In the Gospels, Jesus warns his disciples multiple times of false teachers and warns them about the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark 13, 22, and Matthew 24, 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is warning his, his disciples and his apostles Then in the New Testament church, in the early church, Paul warns the Ephesian elders of false prophets in Acts chapter 20, where he goes to Ephesus and gathers all of the elders of the church, and he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples' After them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. In Paul and his epistles, he almost addresses this in every epistle. In the book of Philippians, he addresses false teachers and tells them to beware of the dogs. He calls them scavengers, dogs, evil workers. He calls them the mutilation. This is chapter 3, verse 2 of Philippians. In the book of Galatians, Paul warns of false teachers. Right off the bat in Galatians chapter 1, he tells the Galatian, the churches in Galatia, that those who would bring a false gospel, he says, let them be, what? Accursed, damned to hell. Paul warns the Romans In Romans 16, verse 17, he says, Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Same thing with Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11, 4. He rebukes them for actually uh, allowing these false teachers to come in. He says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Not in a good way. He's saying you put up with this stuff. You put up with these people coming in, giving you another Jesus, whom we have not preached. And then, in just a couple verses later, in verse 13, he says, Such men are false prophets. Peter warned of false prophets in his second epistle, dedicates a whole chapter to it, chapter 2 of 2 Peter. He says, But false prophets arose among the people. Jude's entire epistle is a warning of false teachers. Matter of fact, Jude says in his opening, he says that he made every effort to write to them about their common salvation, but he felt it necessary 
to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And then the rest of the epistle, he identifies these false prophets and gives them warnings to avoid these false prophets. The writer of Hebrews warns not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings, Hebrews 13.9. The apostle John warns of it in his epistles. 2 John 1.7 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, verse 10, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. So false prophets is, is a theme woven throughout the New Testament. And they're common not only throughout the early church, but they were common throughout the millennia. God actually warned of false prophets from the very beginning. As early as Deuteronomy Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, he says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. So this is a prophet that actually gives a sign and it comes true, but he says they do it saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Then again in Deuteronomy 18, uh, this time he warns against those who would speak something uh, that would not come to pass. Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 20, he says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Then in verse 22, he says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, not if he gets it wrong one out of ten times. He said, If any time that thing does not come true, which he has spoken, uh, it says, That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And earlier it says, if he speaks in my name and it doesn't come true, that prophet shall die. Well, this flies in the face of the modern day quote unquote prophets who sometimes get it right, but more often than not, they prophesy these vague predictions, right, that they can argue at some point they actually come true. Now, if, let me ask you a question. If God was that black and white about prophets in the Old Testament, that if one prophet said something that did not come to pass, then he was false. And in the Old Testament, the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling in believers had not come. How much more today, if prophecy truly still existed, how much more today should that prophecy not only be accurate and never be wrong, but also be detailed down to the minute level details. But instead, you get these so-called prophets who make such vague predictions, especially coming into the new year. You hear them all the time, right? Uh, this is the year of increase. 
And I prophesy that you will have a breakthrough in your finances or, or something silly like that, that that's so vague, right, uh, that they can claim that it comes true. So God warned of false prophets all throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah particularly has many, many warnings against false prophets. Uh, turn with me there, actually. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14. Here in Jeremiah, during this time, the Lord is declaring judgment, condemnation upon Judah for their idolatry, uh, for their tyranny over the people, for their religious apostasy. He even is rebuking his own people for sacrificing their children to the God of Molech. And in chapter 14, the Lord tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people, not to pray for their good, that he was done waiting, that judgment was upon the nation, and he was bringing their iniquity and their sins uh, to account. Look at Jeremiah 14, starting at verse 13. But ah, Lord Yahweh, I said, behold the prophets are saying to them, You will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you the true peace in this place. Then Yahweh said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a vision of lies, divination, futility, and the deception of their own hearts. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they kept saying, there will be no sword or famine in this land. By that sword and famine, these prophets shall meet their end. Can I get someone to turn me up on the mic if someone's, someone knows the switch up there? I think that my, our mic guy stepped out, so <laughs> thank you. <clears throat> so here Jesus, or God is warning the people that judgment is here, and you have these prophets who are prophesying that which God did not say. All throughout Jeremiah, these prophets are prophesying peace, peace, where there is no peace. Now turn over to Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, you got similar rebukes here in chapter uh, 23. Excuse me, chapter, yes, chapter 23. Oh, don't, don't turn 23 yet. But 23 and 27, similar rebukes of these false prophets that they were saying peace, peace when there's no peace. The message from God that God gave through Jeremiah in this context was judgment. But the prophets, the false prophets, were prophesying no sword, no peril, peace, peace. They the false prophets were giving the people a message that they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. In the same way, I see this parallel in our nation who once was a Christian nation that has apostatized from obeying Christ, has turned to idols, rebelled against the king of kings, and many are still saying, even in the Christian church, peace, peace, where there is no 
peace. Many are still saying that God has blessed this nation, but friends, I think if we take an honest look at our whole structure in our country, that our whole country is in rebellion to God and we are seeing God's judgment upon the nation. And we need to sound the alarm like Jeremiah, that judgment from God is here in our country. And we need to stop saying that God has blessed this nation. God has blessed this nation, but now is judging this nation. And we need to tell people what they need to hear, not like these false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 28. I want to show you a false prophet who Jeremiah had warned about. Jeremiah is warning about these false prophets. They're not giving the word of the Lord. They're giving people what they want to hear. And a false prophet comes up just as Jeremiah had warned. Now, at this time, Babylon had already besieged Jerusalem, had uh, burned and plundered the city. And you can learn about that in 2 Kings chapter 25. So that had happened at this point here in Jeremiah 28. And this prophet comes up by the name of Hananiah. And Hananiah speaks to Jeremiah and the priests and says to all the people, it says, in the house of the Lord. And he says, within two years, God is going to break or bring back all the plunder, all the temple vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away. And that God would bring back all the exiles who went to Babylon. And that's chapter 28, verse 3. Jeremiah responds in a very sarcastic manner. He says, may the Lord do so. Now think about it. Remember, Jeremiah, he's warning them about these false prophets who are proclaiming peace, peace. And he's telling Jeremiah to proclaim judgment that Judah would be exiled to Babylon for 70 years and here comes Hananiah saying, nope, in two years, God's going to bring back all the exiles. He's going to bring back all the temple vessels that were plundered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah says, may the Lord do so, and may the Lord confirm your words. I believe that was sarcasm, because he knew the truth. He knew what was happening. He knew that this was the prophet that he had been warning about. Jeremiah then says, for the prophets who prophesy peace... That if the word comes to pass, he will be known as the one whom the Lord had sent. But now look at the same chapter, beginning at verse 15. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen now, Hananiah, Yahweh has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am going to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have spoken rebellion against Yahweh. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year, in the seventh month. So here we see again, God doesn't play with people who claim to speak for him and bring a message that was not from God. In the book of James it says that we ought not to be quick to be teachers because we will go under a stricter judgment. But God throughout history has warned his people of false prophets and of false teaching. 
And in our text today, Jesus is only continuing. He's not bringing up something new. He's only continuing this theme from the Old Testament. So we, too, must be both warned and aware. We are commanded by Jesus to be watchful and on the lookout for false teachers. Listen, brothers and sisters, we must not think that we're too wise, that we cannot be led astray. Now, we won't be led astray in a salvation way. Okay? We, that's not possible. But we need to not be so wise in our own eyes to think that we cannot be led astray into some sort of form of false teaching. Uh, not to mention being aware of false prophets. So as Jude says towards the end of his epistle, we can snatch people out of the fire. That we can try to go into these false teachers and false prophets and people we know and love and snatch them out of that false teaching that they're uh, involved in while not getting our garments polluted, as uh, Jude says. So how do we discern false teachers? We see the warning, beware of false prophets. Now how do we discern these false prophets? Jesus gives us this instruction uh, in the text. Let's look back. He says, first, these false prophets come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets do not come in guns blazing with their heresy. It says they come in in sheep's clothing. Again, an illustration. We are God's sheep. False prophets come in they look like Christians. They talk like Christians. For a season, they may even act like Christians. But inside, they are ravenous wolves. These false prophets, like Satan, sliver into churches, both the church universal, but also the church local. They sliver in like Satan. And they look just like you and I. That's the serious part. You know, oftentimes, especially in a church like this, where we seek to be theologically <clears throat> um, accurate, we seek to know and love God's word, we see the blatant false teachers out there that we would never let into this church, right? We see the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hins that are, that are obvious to us that they're false prophets, Right? And if one of them came into our church, it would be so obvious to us. But that's not who Jesus is warning against here. This is why this is so important, why this could be so detrimental. And we should be fearful. Because these are the ones that they don't come in like that. They come in, and you would not be able to discern them. Uh, Jude says the same thing in verse 4 of his epistle. It says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Galatians 2 verse 4, Apostle Paul says, but this was because of false brothers who secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave, enslave us. So the Judaizers snuck in, Paul says. Peter says it this way in his second epistle, chapter 2 verse 1, False prophets arose among the people who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. 
when Paul warned the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20. He said in verse 29 that these savage wolves will come in not guns blazing from the outside. He said these savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth uh, rebukes them for accepting those who are preaching another Jesus. And he says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, listen, disguising themselves. Or the word means to transform themselves as an apostle of Christ. He says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. And that's 2 Corinthians eleven, thirteen to 15. These people look like formalist and hypocrisy in John Bunyan's book that we went over a couple of weeks ago. They look on the outside. They talk and act just like a Christian, but inside are ravenous wolves. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is so very crucial that we have discernment, that we don't think that I can identify these false prophets out there like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, and others, that we don't have discernment for others who are not as distinguishable. And this is exacerbated by the amount of data and teaching that's out on the internet. There used to be a day where this would only apply to people who you met physically. But now we have to be so very discerning with everything we come across on the World Wide Web, on YouTube and other channels where you have anything and everything. You know, we come across these false prophets that are, that are so easily identifiable, and, and we laugh about them, right, because they're, they're just awful. They're just silly. But what we ought to do instead, and I was convicted of this, these are false prophets that are leading massive amount of people on the eternal road to destruction, and it ought to grieve our hearts. But we also have to have discernment, brothers and sisters, to be able to identify those who look like us, talk like us, talk Bible. They may even sound like they have sound doctrine. But we need to be discerning. <clears throat> so first, we have to understand that false prophets come in disguised. The next instruction we're given by Jesus to identify false teachers is that they will produce bad fruit. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. He repeats this again in verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. The warning comes with the duty to examine those who claim to speak for God. We must be fruit examiners. Now, what fruit is he talking about? Different commentators take different positions. Some people say that this fruit is referring to their teaching, and we need to be able to examine their fruit of their teaching. Uh, others say it's their lifestyle. We need to examine their lifestyle for good or bad fruit. Uh, I think it's both. I think Jesus gives us the warning with the instruction to examine the fruit of both the teaching 
and the fruit or lack thereof in their lives. And Jesus gives this another crazy illustration. You remember the log and the speck, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. What a ridiculous illustration. The log that's like a big telephone pole, Jesus is saying, get that out of your eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, here he gives another uh, outstanding or outlandish illustration to make his point. He's talking to his disciples in this agrarian culture. They, they know how to grow a garden, unlike much of us. <laughs> they know how to do it very well. I know some of you know how to grow gardens well. Uh, but he says, you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? This is just a reference to a thorny plant. It's the same word that was used when they jammed the crown of thorns into Jesus' head. It's a, it's a barren, thorny plant. And he's saying, you don't gather grapes from this barren, thorny, dangerous plant, do you? And you don't gather figs from thistles, which is just another wild, thorny plant. And these thistles are actually harmful to other plants. You don't gather figs from thistles, do you? Now, Jesus is a carpenter giving them a lesson on agriculture, but he makes this uh, extravagant illustration to make the point that whatever you plant in the ground is the fruit you're going to produce. Many of us are getting ready for our spring gardens. When we plant tomatoes, we don't expect to get cucumbers, right? Plants bear what they are. Tomato plants bear tomatoes, and Jesus is saying, even so, even so, a good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He says the same thing in chapter 12, verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by his fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure, what is good? And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. So false teachers, friends, inevitably produce an ungodly lifestyle. They can hide it for a season, but eventually bad fruit will come out. And Jude and Peter give the same warnings in their epistles about false prophets, that they're ungodly. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness, Jude says, and by their deeds they deny the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Peter says they have eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin. 2 Peter 2, 14. You give anyone enough time and you're going to see whatever's in their heart is going to manifest. Now, that's not saying that Christians are perfect and all uh, teachers are perfect. You're going to see, get to know me enough time, okay? You're going to see some bad fruit in my life. But to a false teacher, over time, there will be a revealing of bad fruit that will be so obvious it will be the 
overwhelming pattern in their life. And a plant takes time to bear fruit. In the same way, it takes time to examine someone's fruit in their life. Good trees, it's obvious, they produce good fruit, right? If it's a good tree, it'll produce good fruit. Now, there might be a bad apple here and there in that tree, but for the most part, it produces good fruit. And the bad trees produce bad fruit. Now, there may have some shiny-looking fruit on that bad tree, but since it's bad, those fruits are rotten to the core. Same goes with false teachers and false prophets. It, it looks shiny on the outside, and their fruit at a surface level may look good, but give it enough time, examine them over a, a long enough period, spend enough time with them, and their fruit will be manifested. You will see the bad fruit in their life. And friends, the text indicates that you and I as disciples of Christ are to be fruit examiners. We are to examine the fruit, not of everybody, but those whom we would sit under their teaching. We are to examine their fruit. This is why I want to provide a warning against being solely dedicated to online preaching. Now, the amount of data and sermons that we have out there is mind-blowing. And there's a lot of good stuff out there. I listen to sermons online with the very limited time that I have. But I want to provide a warning uh, of using a lot of your time or more of your time listening to online sermons from preachers you don't know and don't know you and spending less time in the Word, being a noble Berean, studying to show yourself approved. With that online teacher or that online preacher, let me ask you, do you know them enough to be, to be able to examine the fruit in their lives? We are so influenced by others, friends, their doctrine may even be good, but for a time. But Jesus says we are to judge them by their fruit, okay? Not saying, again, it's always bad to listen to online sermons, uh, but just be warned not to get attached to these celebrity preachers. You don't know them. And you know what? They don't know you. Do they know your family? Do they care about your family? Do they know your family's needs? Do they know the needs of Grace Covenant? Do they know the needs of this flock? Listen, the mark of a good Bible teacher an under-shepherd of Christ, is that they exposit not only the text, but they exposit the people. They know who they're speaking to. Jesus was the best at this. Paul, in the same manner. He would speak the truth unashamedly, unapologetically, but he would know who his audience is or audience was. Good preachers spend just as much time exegeting the text as they do exegeting their congregation, okay? They know their congregation so that they can bring the word of God to their congregation and meet the needs of the congregation. So those online preachers, they don't know you. They don't know your needs. Yes, they may be preaching good things. And again, I'm not saying Mark said to cut all that out. Just be warned, that you could be led astray into false teaching because you don't know who that person is and you can't examine their fruit 
in their lives. So on the flip side, it's your responsibility to examine the fruit of the lives of those whose teaching you sit under. Yeah, you're to examine the fruit in my life. You can do that with me. And you must do that with me. And you must do that with anyone who fills this pulpit or teaches in your local church. You're responsible to get to know me, to examine, to see if I am a false prophet, if I have bad fruit in my life. This is why we have a two- to three-year process to ordain elders who would stand as shepherds over the flock. There must be an examining period, both by the other elders in the congregation, but also by you in the congregation. Paul said of the, those in Crete in chapter 1, verse 16, that there was false teachers that professed to know God, meaning they were saying the right things, but by their deeds they denied him. You have to get to know those whom you are being taught by. They could be teaching, professing the right things about God, but by their deeds they deny him. We are to stay away from these people. Another way to discern false teachers is to examine the source of their revelation. In the Old Testament, their source of their revelation was not from God, but from themselves. Now, in the New Testament church, what is the source of the revelation of false prophets? It's not the Word of God, is it? It's usually their own visions, their own dreams. Their source of revelation is from themselves. So that's another way to identify false teachers. And not to mention, false teachers tell people what they want to hear. Just like Hananiah told people what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that everything's going to be okay. That God will bring back the exiles from Babylon. That the temple vessels would be restored. But that was not the message from God. And that is a mark of a false prophet. The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy, that in the end times they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. False prophets will tell unregenerate or even immature Christian things they want to hear, things that satisfy their flesh, deceiving them to keep them and oftentimes to fleece their money. One prime example, and there's many, uh, Kenneth Copeland. If you remember, rewind when COVID started. I don't know if you remember this, but Kenneth Copeland, uh, during his church service, which was empty, by the way, because they didn't want to meet, because they didn't want to get sick, even though they had the gift of healing, okay? In an empty congregation, he looked at the camera, and he prophesied that COVID was over. Do y'all remember that? Anybody but me? He prophesied and declared that COVID was, was done. The, the heat has killed COVID, he said, okay? Now, what does that do to the congregation that's in fear, because that fear had set. That was right around that time where people were freaking out. It's what the people wanted to hear. 
But no, you can't now go back and say, hey, he had a false prophet. He, he prophesied falsely. No, because then they say, touch not God's anointed, right? He can be wrong, but he's still a prophet. They tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. So I want to conclude. Uh, next time we'll go through what our response should be and what God's response is to false prophets. But I want to conclude in this way. While there's been many false prophets throughout the millennia, we need to rest assured and to, to refocus our minds that we have one true prophet, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the one that God told Moses he would raise up a prophet like himself in Deuteronomy 18. This was fulfilled in Christ. Christ is our great prophet. And both Peter and Stephen in Acts 3 and 7 uh, quote Deuteronomy 18, applying this prophecy of the great prophet to Jesus Christ himself. And Christ, as our great and mighty prophet, reveals God to us and teaches us the will of God. And how does he do this? How does he reveal God to us? How does he teach us the will of God as our prophets? Well, it's not through some whimsical or mystical feeling that's only subjective, not by some still small voice, not by some false prophet who prophesies over your life that you should do this or do that or, or, or whatever it might be. That's not how our prophet teaches us the will of God. He teaches us through the written word of God, bearing witness by the Holy Spirit who both wrote God's word and indwells in us if we're a believer. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that his sheep will not follow a stranger's voice, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Uh, some of you here were in some of that false teaching, that, those false prophets. And guess what? Because you were God's sheep, you knew something was wrong. And you stopped following the stranger's voice, and you started following God's voice. Jesus, as your great prophet, you followed him because you are his sheep. And we, in the same manner, we need to go into those circles of false prophets and false teaching and snatch those people out of those circles for the goodness of their souls. Are there people saved under those ministries that are blatantly false and blasphemous? Yes, they're saved despite the teaching, not in spite of the teaching. There are, I believe there are people saved. Some of y'all came out of those circles. We need to be somber and have that reality that God will use the word of God spoken through your mouth to snatch those people out of those false teachers and that false doctrine and those false prophets. And we need to be rest assured and we need to be thankful that God will not allow you to ultimately slip into damning doctrine. If you're saved, you're eternally secure and you may waffle, but he will make sure that you follow his voice because you are his sheep. So this necessitates, friends, to, to conclude the conclusion, we need to get to know his voice. Jesus says that they will not follow the voice of strangers, but they will follow the shepherd because they know his voice. We need to get to know 
his voice. Not by trying to get in some meditation and hear the voice of God, but his voice is in the written word. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to stop reading so much about it and read it. Reading about it is good, but it should never substitute reading it. We need to read it, meditate it, memorize it, teach it to each other, to our family, to our friends. Beware of false prophets and false teaching. Be on guard so you will not be led astray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our great shepherd, our mighty prophet, who teaches us your will, who leads us, who guides us, who reveals God to us through your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would give us discernment. Help us, God, to be fruit examiners. Help us, God, to examine the fruit of those who would teach so that we, Lord, would not be led astray. And Father, for those of us who have family, friends, co-workers, that are in and sitting under false prophets and false teaching. Give us the words of truth to speak to them. Help us, Lord, to snatch them out of that fire. Lord, we pray for those that we know that are in those false teaching, that if they are your sheep, Lord, you would lead them out. Father, that they would no longer follow the voice of a stranger, of a false shepherd, but that they would follow the true shepherd. We thank you, Lord. We give you all honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.